0: Morning's topic, the prayers of Rosh Hashanah. So, okay. Let me just talk uh, generally about the prayers of Rosh Hashanah and then we'll take a look at a specific prayer of Rosh Hashanah. So, when it comes to Rosh Hashanah, I'm talking now about the classical prayer book. What's important to understand about Rosh Hashanah is that the Rosh Hashanah service is actually within our tradition is unique is exceptional uh, most exceptional service that we have and it's first of all exceptional in terms of its structure When when I'm talking about prayer first of all just to define our terms I'm talking prayer in the narrow sense of prayer narrow sense being often in the rabbinic literature prayer is another word for what we call the Shmoneh Esrei, or more properly, the, uh, the uh, Amidah. That's the silent prayer. We say standing. The amida, which is often called tefillah. So I'm talking about that particular prayer. Now, the way it works in terms of the prayers, generally speaking, the currency of the prayer that we have, the way the prayer is, in fact, set up or structured, so the prayers consist of a set of blessings other the so-called Shmona Esrei, which means 18, means that there are 18 blessings. In point of fact, there are 19, but 19th was added. But the point of the Shmona Esrei, as it's called, is a function of the blessings, the number of blessings. Now, let me just say that, without getting to all the details of it, a blessing is a technical term. It's both a general statement of blessing, but it, it is a technical, technical term within the literature. That is to say, a blessing... Has certain basic requirements to be a blessing. Typically, it would start with the word Baruch. It would also mention God's name. It would mention, typically, that God is King of the world. Virtually every blessing that we have begins the same way. Baruch Atah Adonai Eloheinu Melech Haolam. That's how every blessing begins. So blessed are you, God, that particular name of God yud heh vav Hey, which is pronounced otherwise but and then Melech HaOlam the King of the World that's how virtually every blessing we have goes there's one notable exception to that by the way there's one blessing where we don't mention that God is King of the World which blessing is that? Shemona Esrei the Amidah doesn't have it it's Baruch to Hashem and then we mention Elokinu Vokeh Avoteinu or whatever So it doesn't mention that God is king, actually. It's a good question as to why not, but that's not our problem. But in in short, blessings, typical blessings or longer blessings, begin with the word Baruch, and then they say something, and they end also with Baruch. Baruch Atah Hashem, say, Magain Avraham. It's the first blessing of Shemona Esrei. That's called the blessing. Now, the blessings that continue don't have to start with Baruch. So that the Shemona Esrei, only the first blessing starts with Baruch, All the other blessings end with Baruch, but don't begin with Baruch. So the currency, the construction of these fixed texts, which is what we have, is a set of blessings. Now, blessings, of course, are not confined to the Amida. We have other blessings in our prayer service. For example, we say the Shema, and we have attendant blessings in conjunction with the Shema, three in the morning and four at night, And, and those are also blessings. But in talking talking about the Amidah, which is the core prayer of the Jewish people, there we have a set of blessings. During the week, there are 18, actually 19 blessings. On the festivals, including the Sabbath, the Holy Days, Shabbat, and we have all the holidays, there are, in fact, all the prayers that we have consist of seven blessings. Now, you have to remember that when it comes to the blessings the first three and the last three never change the first three blessings of the Shemona Esrei and the last three blessings of the Shemona Esrei are fixed and they don't change sometimes we have very minor additions to it and of course the poets added many things the piyutim added tons of things but that's separate but structurally speaking it's three in the beginning three at the end and something in the middle so during the week the thirteen blessings in the middle but on say Shabbat there's one blessing in the middle, which ends with Baruch Hashem, MeKadosh HaShabbat. On the festivals, that is the three festivals, Pesach, Sukkot, Shavolot, Baruch Hashem, the text we have is MeKadosh Yisrael Vahazmanim, who blesses Israel and the appointed times. Yom Kippur, Baruch Hashem, MeKadosh, etc., Yisrael V'Yom HaKippurim. Okay. Rosh Hashanah typically and in the evening service and the morning service and the afternoon service Mikadesh Yisrael what is the term in the liturgy for Rosh Hashanah remembers Mekadesh Yisrael Vayom Azikaron that's very important the day of remembrance Rosh Hashanah is called the day of remembrance in the, in the, in the liturgy we'll get to that later so the seven it's always seven and the, the, the middle blessing can be very long Mus'af of Yom Kippur can take three hours but it's one blessing one blessing it's always the same with one exception There is one exception to this rule, that there are always seven blessings, and that is Rosh Hashanah in the Musaf. In the Musaf service of Rosh Hashanah, there are not seven blessings, there are nine. There are nine blessings, and each of the intermediate blessings has a name. So the first of the intermediate blessings is called God's kingship, or Malchiot. the second of the blessings is called Zichronot, or Remembrances, and the third of these blessings is called Shofarot. Shofar. What's interesting is actually, let's let's say given the fact that we have these three blessings, and by the way, the text of these blessings is old. The pieces of the actual text that we say are found ready in the uh, in the uh, Talmud are taken as a given in the Talmud. So it's one of those situations where we can say with certainty that the actual text of most of our Rosh Hashanah and of service is ancient. Well, let me get first, before we get to the specific text I want to look at this morning, uh, I want to simply raise an obvious question, which is, why in the world do we have, let's, let's, given the fact that we have three intermediate blessings, so we have a total of nine blessings, in fact, we should really have ten blessings. Because the main blessing in all of the services, and all the holy days, the main blessing that we have on Shabbat, on, on, the, on every festival, is the blessing that the, is called Kiddushat Hayom, the sanctity of the day. It's a blessing that reflects the fact that it's a holy day. So the Sabbath, Mikadesh HaShabbat, Pesach, Mikadesh Yisrael V-Hazmanim. So it's about the sanctity, who sanctifies Israel and these special times, these holy days. So on Rosh Hashanah, presumably... We should have, in addition to the blessing of Me'kadesh Yisrael v'yom an additional three blessings. But we don't. We don't have. Our practice in the Talmud is some discussion about this. But our practice is to have nine blessings. So what happened to the blessing of Kedushat That's the question. So the truth is, in the Talmud, there's a whole interesting dispute. I was thinking about bringing this in, but I decided against it. Time did not allow to see the various opinions in the Talmud. But to make a long story short. What happened to the tenth blessing? Answer: Who knows? What did happen to the tenth blessing? It's merged. That's correct. The tenth blessing. And first, let me just make a small point and get this off my chest. You now, people go to the synagogue on uh, Rosh Hashanah. Many Jews go Rosh Hashanah Kipper Yom Kippur only then. So they come to the synagogue, and let's let's be very blunt about it. It's a very complicated service. Actually, if you don't, if you walk in the for the first time or something. People standing up, they're sitting down, they're this, they're that. Who could possibly figure it out? It's not possible, actually. So what the good thing is that the leader of the synagogue, maybe the rabbi or whatever, instead of talking about some sermon, world politics or something, it might be a good idea to simply take out a machzor and to say, "This is the structure of this. This is what we're going to be doing for many hours today, tomorrow, Yom Kippur, all day, whatever." But no. So no one has a clue. Actually, the most basic things, basic. What is the structure of this book? How, how could anybody figure it out? It's not possible, actually. So, it's crazy, basically. Okay. Anyway, having said all that, yes, the blessing of the sanctity of the day is merging with another blessing. And the blessing that it merges with, in our, it merges with the blessing of God's kingship. So the blessing of God's kingship is, Blessed are you, O God, Melech HaKoha Aretz, B'Kaday Israel HaZikaron, that's the blessing we are saying in all the four prayers of Rosh Hashanah, including Musaf. God is King of the whole world, El Arez, who sanctifies Israel in the day of remembrance. We have merged together the blessing of the sanctity of the day and the blessing of God's kingship. Which means one thing, which is very important for us namely, that if someone stops you on the street and says, Tell me, this Rosh Hashanah, what is it about? you got ten seconds. Tell me what Rosh Hashanah is about. You only have ten seconds. The answer is one sentence. It's a day which celebrates God's kingship of the world. Period. That's what it's about. And it's actually very interesting what Rosh Hashanah is about and what it's not about. Because the, a- the answer would probably be, oh, it's, 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 it's part of repentance or something like that. Now, it is related to repentance. It's the first day of Aseret made Tshuva. But were Rosh Hashanah truly about Tshuva? it would have to reflect itself in the uh, prayer service. Yom Kippur is about Shuba. How do you know that? Because open up a machzor. You see all these confessions, long confessions, short confessions. In the classical machzor, you will find in every single service of Yom Kippur, okay, they took it out 200 years ago from any machzorium, but you'll find in every single service of Yom Kippur without exception, a penitential prayer called Zrichot. Okay, for many reasons, unfortunately, it was taken out of Shachrit, Mincha, and Musaf. But, but Kol Nidrei night, we say Slichot. In the eagle we say only Slichot. So what it means you are saying Slichot and Vidui, and a long Vidui, and a short Vidui, and reenacting the service of the, the purification service of the High Priest. Obviously, Yom Kippur is about is about Shubha. When it comes to Rosh Hashanah, what is so striking is you expect minimally to have Slichot on Rosh Hashanah after all, we have very lengthy shlichot before Rosh Hashanah, we have very lengthy shlichot the day after Rosh Hashanah, you expect some kind of repentance talk, some confessional talk, it is totally and completely absent from Rosh Hashanah, which means that it's not actually about repentance. It is related to repentance, no doubt, related to, but the service is not about tshuva, so it's not about repentance on Rosh Hashanah. It's about something very different related to tshuva, which is it's about the fact that God is king, which is why I think for many of us, Rosh Hashanah is a very difficult day to actually relate to, because what in the world does that mean, God is king? Well, what does that mean? How does that speak to me in my language? I think it speaks to us in the most, it, most profound message that is possible, the most important message for us. Of all the holidays, the most important message is actually Rosh Hashanah. I'll get to that why, in my view why that's true, without question. Because Yom Kippur is real easy. You know what I mean? It means you're not. Exactly. It means it's not about you. That's what it actually means. You live in a world which is not about me. It's very important. It's a different way to see the world. I'll get to that later on. Yeah? So why do you to Rosh do you do? Well, that's a very good question. Why is the seventh month of the year become the first month of the year As okay, right. a question. That's an excellent question. Rosh means the beginning of the year. We have a calendar which has two beginnings. I talked a little about it last night. There's... Obviously, in the Torah, the first month is Nisan. HaChodesh Rosh Chodeshim is the first month. Somehow, some way, Rosh Hashanah becomes the beginning of the year. Now, actually, in the Torah, I can't fully answer your question properly. It would require a lot of, but I'll say one thing about Rosh Hashanah being the first month. There's one place in the Torah where it does appear to be the first month, even though the Torah calls it the seventh month. One very strange rule, which is... That in the jubilee year, in the yovel, it says, "You shall sound the shofar on the tenth day of the seventh month, which is Yom Kippur, and you shall sanctify the jubilee year." It's a very strange idea of sanctifying the jubilee year on Yom Kippur of the of the fiftieth year. Yom Kippur of the fiftieth is it's smack in the middle of the year, actually. So perhaps that fueled the thinking that. It's hard to know where it's actually coming from. And there may be other foreign influences as well. Who knows? But it's we have, in fact, two different beginnings to the year. And by the way, it's not surprising. It's not at all surprising. In other words, we do this all the time. My When my wife, one well, many years ago, was teaching Tractate Rosh Hashanah. So she said, before we start, let me ask you people, uh, how was... What did you do last year? So different people said different things. And if they finish saying what they said, let me, let me just say what you just said. You see that four people spoke and each one had a different conception of what last year means. What is last year? For an academic, last year means you start in September and you end in, who knows, earlier May maybe or whatever it is, April, May. For the Israeli academic, they start after the holiday, So it's October through June. For the tax guy, it's another story. You know what I mean? The point is, Fiscal year. So some people have a fiscal year. And the point is, it's like it's like the day. When does the day begin? Technically, it starts with the Jewish people. It actually starts at night, right? In America, it starts at twelve o'clock. If you say somebody, if you talk to any normal person, the day starts at six, seven, or eight o'clock in the morning. And the point is, they're all true. It's just a different, different, depending on on where you, on what you're talking about, where you stand, the day starts at different times, and therefore, farmers they may start at sunrise or or dawn. Who knows? Point is, it's not that surprising that we have a calendar which has two different beginnings because, depending on your vantage point or what point you're trying to make, but if you're asking the question where it does it emerge from the biblical text, it's a very good question. The, the, surely the, the the jubilee year is very striking. Yeah. Right. Could be so, right? Right. Right. That is also true. It's also equally interesting that in the Chumash, the Torah calls Sukkot Chag HaAsif the end of the year. So, which doesn't contradict what you're saying. It's both. It, in terms of dependency, of course, this is the time when we are. You don't feel it so much in this country. You're in Israel. You feel it very strongly the rain is you know, one of the big problems in the East. among the other problems water is a major problem and we are totally dependent it's not like Egypt says the Torah we always have the water because of the Nile you're depending on God no, no doubt it's a good point in any event yes okay so there's a dispute about we'll get to that in a few minutes there is a dispute in the Talmud Rabbi when did God create when was the world created Was the world created in Tishrei, which is Rosh Hashanah time? And there's a whole tradition about that. Or was the world created in the month of Nisan? I presume that no one actually knows when the world was really created, right? So therefore, I presume that it's not a tradition in the sense that we have knowledge, but it's making a point about what is the difference between saying the world's created in Tishrei or or Nisan is a point being made about the world, which I'll, I'll get to. In any event, Um, let me see I'm trying to remember where I left off with all this conversation Prayer is. I'll get to that two days I'm not going to get into now although the two day holiday is clearly in the Bible we have it we have it in the book of Nehemiah there were two days Rosh Hashanah basically we have it in the book of Samuel The, the Rosh Chodesh feast was two days but the whole two days is the whole... You're asking me questions that require lengthy responses and I can't take care of that right now. Let me get back to the structure. On, so the, therefore, the blessing of Kedushat is tied up with God's, with God's kingship. God on Rosh Hashanah is king and the, the focus is on God. Now, having said that God is king, the next question is what does God do as king? Well, what is God doing as king? The answer for the... Uh, through the prayer service in the Talmud is that God's function as king on Rosh Hashanah is to be one of is to do what kings often do in the in the are supposed to do anyway in the Bible which is to judge when the people want a king in Samuel they go to Samuel and say we want a king God, the king should judge us so God on Rosh Hashanah is a is a judge the day of Rosh Hashanah is a day the day of judgment now the there is a tradition, Let me just get back to this idea of Rosh Hashanah as a day of creation, which is very central to the prayer service. Yes, there's another tradition that the world's created in, in Nisan. The Jewish people have embraced both of these two contradictory traditions, I will say. But on Rosh Hashanah, we embrace the tradition that the world's created on Rosh Hashanah. And here the important point, and there are many midrash and to this effect, is that in Jewish tradition, in the Talmud in Rosh Hashanah, it's not that the first day of creation is Rosh Hashanah. not not so it's the sixth day the world is created says the Talmud in Rosh Hashanah the 25th day of Elul which is the 12th month so that the sixth day of creation is Rosh Hashanah that's number one point number two is that around this tradition that Rosh Hashanah is the day of creation of the uh, human being is another tradition which is very interesting namely that we know in the second creation account it's about partaking of this forbidden fruit the sin and the ensuing punishment, and according to the midrash, interestingly enough, it all takes place on the same day. The day in which Adam was created, Adam sinned. The day in which Adam sinned, Adam was judged. That's the midrash, and therefore, one might say the first Rosh Hashanah was a day of a day of a day of uh, a day of judgment. That's the midrash the author of the liturgy for Rosh Hashanah Zichronot that we'll get to shortly picks this up Zichronot means remembrances it's the central prayer of Rosh Hashanah which I want to get into but it picks up this idea that we in, on Rosh Hashanah are entering into judgment willingly enter into judgment we are repeating as well reenacting the first judgment that's very important. We'll see this structurally very important for the service of, um, of the zichronot, and we make a different point about Rosh Hashanah, another anomaly of Rosh Hashanah. So Rosh Hashanah we have nine blessings, but the truth is, what's very strange is we only have nine blessings in the classical machzor in the Musaf service, but all the other services of Rosh Hashanah, there are seven blessings: the night Rosh Hashanah, night Rosh Hashanah, morning Rosh Hashanah, afternoon. There are seven blessings. Most of you have nine. What is this? We don't have any other service where the number of blessings changes from one time to the next. So there are three possibilities, all of which are mentioned in the various medieval commentaries about what happened over here. One is that initially there was nine blessings in in all the services. And somehow it became too onerous or whatever, and it was deleted in the other services. But the other very interesting, interesting uh, position is found in the Ritzvah, a medieval Spanish commentary. He argues the following. He argues that fundamentally, this I find, I think it's right actually. It sounds very plausible. Fundamentally Rosh Hashanah is the same in the sense of seven blessings. The same as Yom Kippur, the same as Shabbos, the same as all the, all the holidays. Seven blessings. The nine blessings were not recited by the congregation. The nine blessings are recited only by the one who repeats the Shemona Esrei, the Shriach Tzibor, recites the nine blessings. And that is because the nine blessings specifically are related to the blowing of the shofar, which is another anomalous feature of the Rosh Hashanah service. In other words, we are, we're all familiar with the fact and obviously the core mitzvah of Rosh Hashanah is the sounding of the shofar. When do you, when do you actually sound the shofar? What is the mitzvah? To blow the shofar. When is when supposed to blow the shofar, according to the according to the Mishnah? Let's say. When is it? Right. Only during, only during the blessings of the shemona asrei. <coughs> now, we, Jewish people, for many many years, blow the shofar before before the shemona asrei nor in the tradition as Kiyot to Miushev. This, thanks, this is, but that would appear to, that, that's not in the Mishnah. The Mishnah doesn't know from this at all, actually. That's a later, it's in the Talmud. That's a later tradition to blow the shofar before Shemona Esrei. The reason typically given is because those people couldn't stay for the whole service. Sick people, elderly people couldn't stay, so they went in the shofar. They would blow the shofar before Shemona Esrei. The Mishnah does not know from this. And the Mishnah, when it talks about blowing the shofar, it's blowing the shofar in conjunction with the blessings. The blessings they're talking about are the blessings of the Shavon Esray, Malchiyot, Zichronot, and Shofrot. Therein lies another interesting feature of Rosh Hashanah. We have a prayer service of words which is combined with the the shofar. It sounds like the two somehow merge together. The shofar is then kind of prayer. Or one might say that the service of the Malchiyot, Zichronot, and Shofrot or maybe a kind of interpretation or an explanation of what the shofar is actually doing. We're giving an interpretation to to the shofar. According to this view, it's only in the Musaf because only in Musaf are we actually sounding the shofar. And this actually is supported by a very interesting feature of the Rosh Hashanah service. If you notice this or not, I'll tell you what There's another interesting feature of Rosh Hashanah, which, which is on Rosh Hashanah, the leader of the service in the classical uh, machzor, is asking permission to pray. It's called the rishut. And, for example, the, in the classical machzor, in, in in say in the morning service, Shacharid, so the chazan asks permission to pray in the beginning of the of the of the repetition of the of the Asri, in the amida. And it's for example, starts with it's a it's a it's a poem. The, in the Ashkenazic right it's a poem it starts it starts it's a long poem the word here which means fear is the operative word it has a particular chant to it the rishut has a chant the chants are very important because the chants often tell you something about the service anybody know how to sing that, that rishut how does it go that's how it starts. And the character says, That's how it goes. All the way through. There's small variations. Now, that's important. What's one, one second. That's very important, and I'll tell you why. Because in the of service, is also a reshut. In fact, the way it works with the with the Maxir, the machzer has many problems. It's too many words, it's a global problem, but he, too many words in general for prayer. But in but in, in Rosh Hashanah, all these prayers get added in. So that for example the Chazin on Rosh Hashanah in Musaf has two different requests to pray. One is Ochio Vakeil, and the second one is Al Kenovokevo whatever. To them. now which of those two was the real request to pray and the was the real request and how do you know that actually from the tune the tune for is the same tune that you use in Shacharit for the Rishot the other one is a later edition it's also interesting it's it such which parallels the language of the request in Shacharit which is means fear Right? It's, all, it's all So That's the that's the request. Now, where does the Chazan ask permission to pray? Where is Ochiro Lokel? Where is that found? And by the way, the same thing is true on Yom Kippur. In Yom Kippur also, the Chazan is asking permission to pray. There are two things very strange about the request to pray in Musa. Never bothered you? Is this is an obvious problem. The Chazan is asking permission to pray. Ochil lakel appears just before Malkiot. Just before Malkiot. By the way, that's how you can tell when Malkiot actually starts. Malkiot starts. Where does Malkiot start? Who knows? What is the beginning of Malkiot? it would appear for, based on this request. In this Mark, so let's see. Do we have it here? 155 is Ochila. That's correct. First, that's the long request and Ochila, okay, the ark is opened or whatever. And then, You see the top of 156? Al Kainu, 156. Therefore, is this paragraph familiar to you? Al It's what? It's the second stanza of a prayer we call Allenul So it would appear actually, would appear, that Maochiot begins not with Olenu, but with the second paragraph of Olenu. Because the first paragraph of Olenu is recited before O'Hilakel, before the request. The Chazin is asking permission to say malchiyot with ochil lakel, and then continues with the malchiyot. Yom Kippur is the same way. The Chazin asks permission to say the avoda, begins with ochil lakel, and then you say the Avodah is Yom HaKippur, in the service of the high priest. In other words, what's strange is, the Chazin is asking permission to pray, where in most places he's been praying for about an hour and a half already. He said, "Always oh, piyutim, the Sanatokif, tokev, kedusha, the Ava the works." Now you're asking permission to pray in he Yes, in the beginning. Yes. Hinony is though later. Hineni is a request okay. it's supposed to be recited silently. It becomes a big production for the chazanim. But Hinony is a, an example of a private it's supposed to be a private prayer that the chazan. It's very beautiful that the chazan says before shemona essay, which the chazanim liked, and they. That's a very interesting question in general about the role of chazanut in terms of the prayer service. That's a very interesting question um, because what happens when the chazan... I, some think it all begins when the chazan starts getting paid, when it becomes a job. <laughs> so they have to justify their check, you know what I mean? And suddenly, they, things which were essential become moved to the sidelines or eliminated altogether, and other things become a big, big deal. Hinnani is a very good example of the problems with the, with, with this because Hinnani is obviously a pr- very private prayer which becomes public which is a problem on many levels. You know, whenever, whenever it's about me it's a problem in prayer. That's the problem with chazanim in general. It can, it doesn't always have to be that way but to, to find the chazanim with very in a very modest way is not so simple to find. There are such people but there are many who don't uh, take that path. So, in any event... What happens is the things that the Khazan can make a big production out of become central. Things like Srichot on Yom Kippur get removed, basically, for many reasons. That's probably one of them. So. But you're right. Hinani is a reshut as well, and there are others as well yeah, beyond this. But in any event, the point I make is that it makes perfect sense for the Khazan to ask permission to pray before Malchiot, Zichrant, and Shofrot, if, in fact, this is only said by the Khazan. Now this is the part where the chazan actually is doing his thing where no one has said it before so now he turns to the congregation and says now I'm going to be you as it were and now we're going to say the part of the service that I'm, I alone say for that you need permission because this is so special so therefore this would be supportive of the idea that on Rosh Hashanah it was also seven, prayer, seven blessings and only in the musaf with the shofar is the suddenly we get nine blessings out of seven So that's it from a structural standpoint that's what makes Rosh Hashanah very different than all the other services. And now let's talk about it not from a structural standpoint but from the standpoint of what is actually being said on Rosh Hashanah. So the first point is let's begin with the first obvious point. Rosh Hashanah is a day of God's kingship. That's, That's the theme of Rosh Hashanah and the king is also a judge. Now First of all, what does it actually, what does this mean? So the first thing it means is, if you see, if it's about God's kingship, it means that we're not the king, we're living in God's world, which has to do with, it's a different way to see the world. Now, let me just give you by a good analog to this, which is actually very important for those interested in studying the Bible, for example. Chumash. Now let's say we're studying together the book of Exodus which of course is a story of our descent into Egypt and our leaving Mitzrayim both physically behind and hopefully spiritually behind and establishing a sacred space in which we and God inhabit the same space. The book of Exodus, glorious book. Nachmanzi's calls it the book of redemption. Someone stops you and says, tell me, what is this book about? What is the goal of Exodus? Here you can give two different answers. One is, well, the goal is to give people the freedom to make choices and they can be full human beings and as full human beings can connect up to God in the in the deepest way and that's the goal the goal is that people be in a, in a place where they can make all the choices they want to make they are autonomous beings and, and, and only autonomous beings can fully uh, have a full relationship with, with with God that's that's one possibility God saw our suffering and God took us out of Mitzrayim That's one way. When you read the book of Exodus, I must confess, that's not what appears in the book of Exodus. When uh, Moses visits the ten plagues or tells Pharaoh you are going to have all these various plagues and gives reasons for the plagues, reasons are given before the first set of three, the next set of three, the next set of three, and before the last plague as well, Moses didn't say to free the suffering people. Moses said something very different. I'm going to bring plagues upon you and you will know, says God, that I exist. And the next one, you will know that I exist in the middle of your land. And then God says, you will know that no God is great as I am. And now only does the message deliver to Pharaoh, but God said to Moses in chapter 10 of Exodus, I'm going to multiply my miracles in order that you tell your children, grandchildren, how great I am. That's what it says. I'm not making it up. You should know about me, says God. In other words, not that it's the the focus is not the human condition giving people more rights and and opportunities and all that stuff no, they're not at all the focus is that God should bring people out of Egypt who will then serve God in God's temple they are not Pharaoh's servants says God, they're my servants (coughs) now that has all kinds of residual effects upon the conception of the human being, no doubt but my point is that the focus is not on us. It's not about us at all. The world is not here for us. We are here to serve. That's the point. If one has that mentality, one operates differently in the world. Put on the world to be God's servants. That's what emerges, I think, most clearly from the book of Exodus. The truth of the matter is you can read the book both ways. You can read the Bible both ways. It's not this or that. When the story of Joseph in Egypt is a story of going into exile. If you ask yourself the question, why is Joseph in Egypt in the first place? You could say, Joseph is in Egypt because he he, he and his brothers can't get along, because he maligns them, because they're jealous of him, because Jacob is a very poor father who exacerbates the problems, because it's a dysfunctional family or whatever it is. At the end of the day, you end up in exile. That's all true. And there's another answer, also true. And Joseph was lost and wandering in the field, and a man finds him. What are you searching for, my brothers? They've left here, they've gone to Doton. And the man sends him to Doton, from which Joseph is sent to, sent to Egypt. And Rashi comments, Who is this man? I think Rashi says it's Gabriel. What's well, that, the Pshat, actually? I don't mean it's Gabriel, it's God's messenger. The Ish. The Ish who finds Joseph. What do you seek? We end up in Egypt because God has told Abraham they're going down to, they're going to suffer. That's my plan that's my plan which of these two is correct of course both they're both they're both absolutely correct readings of the, uh, of the of the Torah that's a very important point but there's a big difference in our own head between seeing a world in which it's about me self-esteem That's a popular word now my self-esteem or saying I was put on earth to serve I was put on earth to be a slave to God's slave okay if you have that mentality, See so you have you operate differently in the world. There's a difference between the person who believes in tikkun olam and the person who believes I am I am God's servant. You get a perfection of the world. There's a lot of which I'm not opposed to, by the way. But but tikkun olam means we're here to we to do good in the world, we're here to perfect the world, etc. That's one that's one head. And there's a different head, which you won't find in the progressive Jewish community, period, and the report you'll find it in a little sometimes in Chabad you'll find it in some of the Haredi places you'll find it in some non-observant places in the land of Israel and you'll find it in many Christian uh, Christian uh, intentional communities is where you'll find it I'm here to do Jesus' work so I'll tell you straight out I put on earth to serve sir, how do you serve? God will tell me God will call me it, it, within Hasidus you have a similar thing as well that's a completely different head Thank you for being nice. What are you thanking me for? That's why I'm here. What do you mean thank you? It's great. If you thank a person like this, it'll get crazy, actually. What do you mean thank you? That's that's why I'm on earth. Why else are you on earth? I'm, I'm God's servant. HaShem It's a different mentality, and you get different results from it, too, by the way. That's just a different head. A person who believes I'm, I was put on earth to serve you will walk a hundred miles to help you. That's different. That's the. That should be our. that's our goal by the way how, how we get there that's my goal one project in my life I wanted to create a program which people come out not so simple because we're talking about people who believe in, in being autonomous it's not that I'm the Rebbe Mashiach who tells you what to do I believe in autonomy can you do it actually it's a good question can you have an autonomous community which believes at its core that God has called us to serve that's the question it's a very important question in any event that's what Rosh Hashanah is about Rosh Hashanah is saying very simple. It's not your world. You are strangers and sojourners with me. And you see the world that way. And I'll tell you a story and then I'll take average point. Many years ago I used to teach for the Wexner Foundation. I got a call from a guy in Seattle. He was the following I may have mentioned this story. I like this story a lot. He called me up. He had just gone to the South Pacific, scuba diving in the South Pacific. He was came back very troubled by stuff. He spoke to his rabbi, he didn't get a good answer, so he called me up and he says, here's the deal. I went to the South Pacific and I went under the ocean there. There are millions of these creatures that I never knew even existed. What are they doing there? He says. What, 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 they, what is that? So I went to my rabbi, gave me some answer. What did your rabbi say? Says, some nonsense anyway. The point is, I said, let me tell you the answer. I want to tell you something. When you were down in that water, those million creatures were saying the same thing about you. <laughs> what is this guy doing here? Like, who is he anyway? You know, he's it very really our says your mistake is thinking the world's for you nothing to do with you you're a creature in God's world the same way they are stop thinking about yourself nothing to do with you you reside in the world the same way the various species do under the South Pacific, it's all the same thing not your world my friend that's that the true answer, you know what I mean it's a different way to see the world so that's, that's the importance of Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur is different Yom Kippur is simple Yom Kippur is about us. Yom Kippur is about repentance. It's about self-transformation. God is a given on Yom Kippur, by the way. Maybe we'll get to this next week. God is a given. We assume God God will forgive. But fundamentally, the work is our work to do. We're going to think about the past year. We're going to try to change things and all that. Rosh Hashanah is a different way to see the world. Rosh Hashanah means it's not about me at all. I live in God's world. That is Rosh Hashanah. And that's what God's kingship is. What do you want to say? not being here to serve God, seeing yourself as God's servant. God's servant. Right. You are God's servant means the servant does what the master tells him to do. Basically, that's the point of the servant. The servant, it, 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 it involves on some level a self-negation of sorts. That, that's the point of it. It's what the Hasidim call beto. You, you, you're you here to serve. You're going to do whatever you're told to do. There's a deep submission that that... In, 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 that is involved. It's also very liberating, in a sense. It's very clear what your mission is. Of course, everybody's mission is, of course, different. As the Yishviter says, it will be foolish to assume that your mission and my mission are the same. Everybody has their own mission. It's very humanistic in that sense. And how do you know? That's the big question. How do you know? God God, God will tell you. I was talking to a guy in Israel who I like very much, a very pious person. A Hasidic guy became... became and he said, what I said, What are you doing? He says, i am been teaching, but I'm not sure. I said, I'm not sure what I want to do. He says, um, I said, well, maybe I said, maybe God will tell you what to do. But when I want to ask you, if God tells you, you think you're going to hear? He says, yes, I will. God tells me, I'll know. So how do you know? Michelle says the what? same thing. That's right. And people say the same thing. So the question is, many people believe that God is talking to them. Many people believe that the world was created for them. The question is... I think, and the way I I measure it is that the true servant of God has one central quality which is absolutely uh, essential to moving forward religiously which is humility. That's the way I test it. And humility is related to a deep honesty. So if you have humility and a deep honesty it doesn't mean we can't be wrong, okay? And the focus is on service, The focus is not my own advancement. That's the point of the avid. The avid can't advance, actually. You're a a servant for life. You never become a non-avid, okay? Tell me what is right. That's the point. It involves certain basic qualities, which most politicians don't have, okay? Which has to do with not humility. There's no complacency. You're never satisfied where you are. You always want to do more. You're always dissatisfied, actually. Those are the things that come together with this being seeing oneself as a servant, and you're there for the other. That's the point. It's always there for the other. It's never about yourself, okay? So I don't know anything about Backman or any of these other politicians, but I haven't found too many politicians who I would say are actually servants of their their constituencies. It comes together with a whole bunch of of qualities, attributes that you won't find typically in people who are interested in figuring out, spinning, how they're going to move to the next level. They're planning their next next, 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 next uh, election where they are elected, you know, at the inauguration of the president, they're planning for the next four years. That doesn't work, but that's not what I'm talking about. In any event, this is the mentality of Rosh Hashanah. Now, let us see the actual, one of the prayers of Rosh Hashanah, my favorite one, which I think is the central prayer of Rosh Hashanah, which is Zichronot. The middle, why is it central? First of all, it actually is the central prayer. It's the middle of the three. There's Malchiot, Zichronot, and Shofrot. Number two, we have to remember that in the liturgy, Rosh Hashanah is called Yom Hazikaron, the Day of Remembrance. And the reason it's called Yom Hazikaron, I think, is this: that in the Torah, the Torah says virtually nothing about Rosh Hashanah. Nothing. Two or three verses about Rosh Hashanah, unlike all the other holidays. It doesn't tell us what Rosh Hashanah is about altogether. And I talked about that last night and made several suggestions. But the point is, the term that it uses for Rosh Hashanah is two terms. One is Yom Trua, a Day of Trua. But the other place it calls it Zichron Shua. Zichron Shua. The rabbinic understanding of Zikaron is means memory. It often comes together in in, in the liturgy and biblical Hebrew with the idea of God's forgiving you. But Zichronot then becomes for the service um, the idea of memory. The idea of memory is the central idea of the central blessing of of, of Rosh Hashanah. So I wanted just to make a suggestion about how this is structured and we have it on page 158 in this Maksa. I would add that for those that know Hebrew well, it's one of the most beautiful prayers that we have. The, 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 it's very old. It's a beautiful Hebrew. Beautiful. Starts on 158. It starts with You remembered what was it says wrought from eternity you are mindful all that's been formed from old before God everything is revealed nothing is forgotten before your throne nothing is hidden from your eyes you remember every deed And Yitzur, that's a word that appeared already twice, a Yitzur is a created being. The verb, Yud Sari Resh is the verb that appears in the second creation account of the Torah. God formed the human being. So God remembers, knows all the deeds, and each person, apart from the deeds, the person cannot hide. Everything is known. So, who can see into the future? Who can see into the future? Who can see Who Mishpat We have in this description over here, the language is very beautiful and extremely frightening. God is remembering everything, every act, every person, every created being. And then it says something curious over here that God looks into the future, to the end of time. God sees not just the past, but God can see the future. What is the writer of this, by the way, there's a name for this poem, the, 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 the texts for Rosh Hashanah are very ancient and they have a name, Tikiato de Beirav. They're called Tikiata de Beirav. It's associated with the house of Rab, who's an early Amora, first generation Amora. So presumably, he's credited with the composition of these poems. They're quite ancient. Why does the text mention that God walks into the future? What is the point? The past, I understand. Why the future? Sofel mabit ad-savkoh adorot. I think the simple reading is this, because the point of the uh, poem, the, the point of this description, the words which remember has one meaning in the beginning of this this text, which means which means judgment. God is remembering means God is judging. As we'll see spelled out explicitly in a minute, God is judging everything that we've who we are and and, and, and what we've done. But the point is what we've done, you know, it's like on Yom Kippur we are saying a prayer. It's called Yisgar. It's a prayer for the dead, and it's based on a on a rabbinic statement in the in the Sifrei in, in Devarim. she'podita, God should redeem the people that God has redeemed. Kapeli those who are living; she'podita, those who have died. So on Yom Kippur we have a prayer an atonement prayer for those who have died. That's the idea of Yitzchua on Yom Kippur. But why do those who have died require atonement? They're dead. So they're not doing anything wrong. But the answer is they are, actually. And this is the point. Every time you do something, once you do something or you say something, it leaves your control. And it creates all kinds of, has all kinds of implications. Long after you're gone, you can still be causing and sometimes a lot, of, a lot of good or the opposite a lot of damage that's the point when we do something we don't, we don't think of it this way but it could have an effect a hundred years later who knows and that's to my God is looking into the future to properly assess to evaluate what we've done says this poem it's not sufficient to know the past and to know our, our, our context and who we are and who is the person doing this everybody's different but also to know the effect God knows the effect of what we've done and then it says this was told to us from the beginning of time you revealed this truth to us in the beginning for this day is the beginning of your creation a remembrance of the first day a statute unto Israel and a day of judgment for the God of Jacob what does that line refer to this day is a remembrance of the first day so this is what I mentioned before that this day is a reenactment of the first day that the human being was created, based on the midrash, that the day the human being was created, the human sinned and the human was 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 punished. It's a midrash that uh, has a, you know, a I would say a, not a cynical view, a realistic view of 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 of, of, uh, of a human nature. It didn't take long to eat of that tree, since the midrash was the same day, and the judgment came swiftly. In other words. In the beginning of the service, the person who stands on the stage in the beginning of Zichronot is none other than the first human being, Adam. Maybe his wife is with him, with him too. But the point is, the first human is Adam, and the first human was judged. And we are reenacting that judgment. And then the text continues, V'yal ha bo and concerning the nations it can be said, "Ezel l'achere v'yezo l'ashalom, who will have peace or war? Who will have won't have enough food? Who will have sufficient food? Who created beings are also remembered. To be recalled for life or death. Who is not who is not who is not taken account of on this day? For the remembrance of every created being comes before you. Mase ishu fakudato. The deeds of a person ufakudato. What does mean? His task. His task. That's what the Hasidim are talking about. Task. T A S K. Apart from the specific deeds, are you fulfilling your task? Everybody has a task. That's the claim. Everybody's put on earth to do something. What that something is, that's that's what we gotta figure out. How do you know? Not easy. What am I called to do? What is my calling? That's the point. Are you fulfilling your calling? Okay, you do doing the little things right. But what about, what about your calling? You're put on earth to do something, whatever that may be. Are you fulfilling that or not? Here they translate... The human being's deeds and destiny, works and ways, thoughts and designs, and the working of imagination. In short, this is the God before whom we stand on Rosh Hashanah, who knows not our past, but who we really are, who knows all of our designs, machinations, excuses, rationalizations, etc., true desires. It doesn't look good for us, i got to tell you what to do <laughs> It's not a judge you're going to bribe. It's not a judge you can fool. This is the judgment. It's that first judgment of first judgment of of, of, uh, of, of Adam. We try to hide from it, but there's no way to hide. I mean, it's because God knows it all. The excuses don't work. They make it worse, actually. Yes? You'll get to it. If we start at this point, we're basically cooked at this point, but... That's the trick of this blessing. This is so awesome. How do you move from, from God knowing everything, remembering, which is judgment, how do you escape Rosh Hashanah is the question. You want to get to Yom Kippur, how do you escape Rosh Hashanah? That's exactly the point of this prayer. And there's, the structure of it is extremely interesting. There's, a, I think, a profound understanding of the Chumash, the story of Adam. The Torah begins with Adam. The writer of this, the composer of this service I have maintained for many years and I still do maintain has based this particular prayer the central prayer of Rosh Hashanah on the following idea that in the book of remember that Rosh Hashanah in the tradition is the day of and we just made the point is related to the creation Rosh Hashanah is a creation day as we say later Hayom Haratolam. Today is the creation of the world, founding of the world. So Rosh Hashanah recalls in our tradition the creation of the world. In creation of the world, questions when you're studying the book of Genesis, the book of Genesis begins with creation. and Then you move, after a while, there's a flood, etc. Then you move to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the matriarchs, Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, and, and, and Leah. Where does the creation story in the book of Genesis actually end? That's the question. The answer to this, I think, is suggested by a statement in, in the Ethics of the Fathers, Perkeovot. The true answer involves a deep understanding of Genesis. And in Perkeovot, it makes the following point. It makes the following statement. There were 10 generations, it says, in Perkeovot, from Adam to Noah. <laughs> And there were ten generations from Noah to Abraham. And that statement actually is very telling for us. Because what it suggests is something which is very true in the book of Genesis, which is that the book of Genesis, the creation narratives of Genesis, do not end with chapter 1 or chapter 4 or even with Noah, but they actually end with with, uh, Abraham. And they end with Abraham for the following reason, which I will briefly describe which is that in the beginning of the Torah, there are actually two different creation accounts. There's one creation of heaven and earth. That's chapter one. But in the second creation account, which is more about the human being as we know the human, God forms the human. The word Bayitzer is there. And that human being is a lonely being. And that human being is a sexual being. And that human being is, enters into a relationship with another human being. And that human being sins. And that human being makes excuses and blames the other. And that human being is exiled from the, from, the, from the sacred space, from the garden. And the exile is effected, and it's very important for other reasons, by the presence of the snake. Suddenly in this world there's a snake, who's very dangerous, who attacks the human at the weakest point, and who manages to drive the human out of the sacred space. And the rest of the... So there are two creation accounts. The first is the creation of heaven and earth. And the second is creation of the sacred space from which the human has been driven out. Sacred space means a place you share with God. The Torah then sets out to redo, as it were, both the first creation account and the second. The first creation account has to be redone because shortly thereafter the world is destroyed. The world is flooded. The waters cover the whole world. And the world has to be recreated. The one who represents recreation of the world, of course, is uh, is uh, Noah. Noah. Noah comes in, re, is into a, a new world. He's given similar charges to, as was Adam in, in chapter one, the human in chapter one, the male and the female of chapter one. He's told to be fruitful and to multiply. He is told that he has been endowed with God's image. Selam Elohim, the injunction against murder. Do not keep it. Selam Elohim, or ta adam. The human being is endowed in God. But there's no sense in the Noah story about a sacred space. There's no special space. Special space, sacred space, comes in with the next character, which is Abraham. And in two senses. First of all, he's directed to go to a specific place, the land of Canaan. And ultimately, within the specific place, there's another place. The special place within the special place. And that is, he has to be able to, to, to connect to that place to make that place part of himself and to connect up to God through that place. And that is the incredibly important story in the Torah of the Binding of Isaac. Haram Moriah, the place that I will tell you. And Abraham sees the place and he names the place. And this becomes the sacred place. This becomes the holy place. So the Haram Moriah, which is accomplished the discovery of the place, is part and parcel of the story of the Binding of Isaac, is for the Torah... The fulfillment of the idea of sacred space, way it becomes the place of the temple, the Mishkan and sacred space. There are a set of sacred spaces which, for the Chumash, are a fulfillment of the second creation story. The first creation story about recreating earth and heaven. Okay, that's Noah, but the recreation of sacred space. That's Abraham. So in short, if we think about the creation narratives of Genesis. I would say the, a defining point, I would say the, the, com- the conclusion of the creation narratives of Genesis is not to be found with Adam or with Noah, but with Abraham in chapter 22 of the book of Genesis. And what I've just told you, by the way, if everything else, has so many implications and can take you in a very good place towards a deep understanding of Genesis. Many others have written about Genesis, I will say, with little understanding of it. Many great people, and they don't understand it. This is a key to understanding many things. Here's the point for our purposes this morning. The author of this prayer understands it. And the author of this prayer bases the prayer of Zichronot on three people. It begins with Adam. We now move to Noah and we're going to end up not just with Abraham but the end of the blessing, of course, ask God to remember Akedat Yitzchak. This is the point. One of the better things I've thought of in my life, i got to tell you, it's because it has implications for us on a hundred levels. And it's obviously correct. And, and by the way, if Adam represents judgment in this particular text, then what do Noah and what do Abraham represent? And they, they are the path to, to, to escaping Rosh Hashanah, to escaping the judgment. Noah, and then of course the hero of the day is actually Abraham. The hero of the day is Abraham. The binding of Isaac is a very central... It is actually appears at the, the end of this, the blessing of this central prayer. Yes, you want to add something? Well, I was just thinking that, that right after the flood stops, it
1: says God remembered Noah. And right.
0: I was just thinking about the word well, of it's, it's right here in the service. So this is the first one of the first verses we're going to reference. Remember, there's something else I want to mention. I forgot to mention this. It was obvious. There's something else unique about Rosh Hashanah's service. Not just the structure. But there's something else very interesting about the Rosh Hashanah service, which is, it consists, according to the Mishnah, and we follow this, the Rosh Hashanah service consists of a set of verses from the Bible. In fact, in each of the three blessings, we follow the view, I think it's Rabbi Akiva, that there must be a minimum of ten verses from the Bible in each of the three sections. Not only are there ten verses from the Bible, but they're ordered in a certain way. Three from the Torah... Three from the writings, from Psalms. Three from the prophets. And it tends from the Torah. And that's true in all of the three blessings. So we have, we have the particular verses from different places. What is that about? Why is Rosh Hashanah's service consist of largely a set of verses? But I think the answer is actually related to what I said before. Which is, on Rosh Hashanah it's all about God. It's not about us. So we have a lot of ambivalence about talking about God for a very simple reason. First of all, whatever you're going to say about God will be incomplete. And who are we to make statements about God anyway? Who gives us the right to do this? The answer is we don't. We're very reluctant in our tradition to, to say very much about God. So if we're going to talk about God, we want to use God's own, own, own language. That's why in Rosh Hashanah, which is a God-centered day, we are using the language of the, of, of, of the, of the Bible as opposed to Yom Kippur the exact parallel in the, the exact place on Yom Kippur the parallel on Yom Kippur to the Malchiyot Tzichrant and Shofrot from a structural standpoint what appears exactly in the same place on Yom Kippur is the service of the high priest the Avoda the Chazin has permission to pray and then starts with the Avoda Yom Kippurim. maybe next week we'll have a chance we'll discuss Avoda Yom Kippurim. But avodas Yom HaKippur in the service of the high priest on Yom Kippur is essentially, and there are many different texts for it, but they all have the same point. They're based on what? Do you know? They're based on the Mishnah. In fact, the early Avodah was just a reading of the Mishnah. The core text for Yom Kippur is the Mishnah. The core text for Rosh Hashanah is the Bible. And why is that so? Because the Mishnah is the product of, of of human imagination, the mission is our, is, is our book. We wrote the mission. Our, the mission. Is part of interp- reinterpreting the Torah. The mission is the collected wisdom of various people over, over generations, who set in motion a process of kind of, kind of, kind of a, a interpretive tradition that we are all involved in. Yom Kippur is about us. It's about our ability to reinterpret. One might say our, our, our own lives. Etrie it's Yom Kippur with Kol Nidre, which is Hattaras Nedarim. Taras Nadarim, the ennoblement of vows is not found in the Bible. On the contrary, the Bible speaks against it. It's clear you can't do it. Nonetheless, we have overturned it. We, we believe you can do it. We can. We can decide. We can. We can. In a way, we can. Even though we made promises to God, we can say, "Okay, we did." But we, we, we have a way out. Okay. So on Yom Kippur, it's about the Mishnah. On Rosh Hashanah, it's about the Bible. Anyway, we have over here the first piece of this is the, the, the frightening judgment Standing, all created beings stand before God on Rosh Hashanah not just individual people but are told states as well because after all Adam wasn't just a person Adam is a person Adam is also humanity Adam is both so therefore the judgment of Adam is a judgment not just about a person Adam but about the human writ large here it's called the states In short, we have a problem here of survival. And now we have the first turning point of this prayer, of this prayer, which begins with the following... Yes? Well, because there are many remembrances, that's why. It's not just one remembering. We describe here many different things. Remembering individuals, remembering nations, remembering deeds of the person, remembering the person. Uh we'll maybe come back later if we have time at the end having another thought about that as well here's a turning point happy is the one who does not forget you we say the one who strengthens himself herself in you for those who seek you out shall not stumble for those and those who uh, rely upon you will not be ashamed. For the remembrance of all deeds come before you. And you are Doresh, all of them. And what does it mean to be Doresh? The place is called Drisha. What is that about? No. My father chose that name, Drisha, actually. Didn't know Hebrew very well, but he, he had an excellent language. Amazingly gifted in language. And he had a feeling for the good, good word. Jerisha has two meanings. Which is why we like the, like it. Jerisha in the Torah means Jerisha v'chakira. What does Jerisha v'chakira mean? It means careful study. So it means to study something very deeply to figure out what it actually means. That's that's what the judges have to do. To study something, the matter deeply. right? But Jerisha has another meaning. Hashem behi matzel means to search. So, which Rosh means to search for something has the, both the meaning of studying, an intellectual exercise, but it also has the meaning of searching, which is not an intellectual exercise. Searching for God, that through the study, the idea being that the study of Torah is not just an intellectual exercise, but primarily is a is a religious exercise. We want to understand what we should be doing? We want to understand more about our world, ourselves, demands upon us, our commitments, and all that. Says the writer of this poem. The first part talks about God never forgetting. There's no forgetfulness before God. Right? And now we say, happy is the human being who doesn't forget God, who seeks God out, those who seek you. And then it says, because the deeds come before you, you are doresh, all of them. And so the word doresh has a double meaning. God is doresh us, means God demands of us, that's doresh, but God also seeks us out. In other words, what it's saying in effect is that at least for those who seek God, that there isn't this kind of objective judgment. It's not a computer. But God takes into account the person. Those who are seeking God out, so God is seeking them out. And seeking out suddenly carries a meaning not just of of studying to see what the book says, but to seek out the person. God God wants, God God cares about the person. And now, onto the stage of Yom Rosh Hashanah stands someone who we never have in our prayers, actually. But it appears on Rosh Hashanah only. It's very predictable. Noach And you remember Noah. And this is, of course, the recreation. Noah's the recreation. And Noah represents for the writer of this poem the following thoughts. What Noah represents is God's concern for the person. Because even in a situation where the whole world is destroyed, but God didn't say, okay, destroying the whole world, Noah gets destroyed as well. But for this this poem, God takes Noah into special account. The garment Noah, you remember Noah, suddenly it's not this kind of very objective judgment, but you you remembered him with love. But if by Yeshua there's a play in the word Pakad, because the word Pakad means to count, and therefore to judge, to take, to make someone accountable. But Pakad has another meaning in the in the Torah. <coughs> to redeem. To redeem. But if Gedeu has a double meaning, it's a pun. You you, you remembered him, but you also saved him. You saved him, and suddenly words that don't appear connected to judgment. Bi'ava, Yeshua, Rachamim, Right? In other words, not everybody is judged the same way. Right? His remembrance came before, it says two lines later, to increase his descendants. Right? As it is written in the Torah, and here we cite verses from the Torah. The first verse is the verse of Noah the winds passed over the waters and the waters were stilled Right, the wind passing over the waters means the recreation of the world because in the beginning of the Torah what does it say in the beginning God created heaven and earth right the earth was a total void and chaos and all that the spirit of God hovered above the waters. The spirit of God probably means the wisdom of God. and then God creates a, orders a world. And what is the story of the flood about? It's the uncreation. It's the chaos. and out of the chaos Noah is is, we, is coming out of these emerging from the chaos and a new world has been created. So yes, everybody is judged, but not all are judged equally those who are Doresh God those who seek out God God is seeking out them interesting by the way that in certain Hasidic teachings which have all kinds of different conversations some of the deep Hasidic teachings especially the more radical ones I see this all the time and I think you're doing some work on this and writing this up deep deep connections to the early Christian teachings they're virtually identical this idea in Hasidic how do you how do you how do you survive Rosh Hashanah one of the teachings you often hear is, "Well, if you don't judge the other person, then God doesn't judge you." That's a very deep Hasidic teaching, which of course you have in the early Christian teachings: "Forgive us as sin as we forgive others," which is very Hasidic. You have it, and that's very similar to what you have over here. Yes, God is judging everybody, but there's one one that God does not judge in the same way: those who are those who are seeking out God says God if you don't forget me I'm not going to forget you either if you seek me out I seek you out if you follow me in love I, 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 I treat you with love it's also a kind of it's judgment in the sense of kind of equality what you give is what you get but it has a different cast over here so the first verse of course is Noah and the second verse though moves from Noah remember that for the prayer service the writer is constrained by the word Zachar. Every verse has to have the word Zachar. So that you're constrained by that. But it's another conversation. The first verse is about Noah. The second verse on the top of page 159 is a verse from Exodus that God remembered Israel in the land of Egypt. God remembered the covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the next verse is once again about people who are in exile. Both the second and third verses, I would say the first verse, is interesting. Noah's interesting. In other words, the verse that's cited in conjunction with Noah is not about God saving Noah before the flood. It's about God saving Noah during the flood. In other words, all three verses are the same. We don't think of it this way but imagine you're Noah on this boat. which is It's actually not a boat because as many have pointed out Kasuto amongst them a boat you have someone who can steer the boat. The table is a box it's not a boat. You go where the water takes you you have zero control over it. You're in this box with the raging waters with the darkness and can you escape it? And God allows Noah to emerge unharmed from this box God quiets the waters the next verse is about Israel and Egypt one might say the raging waters of Egypt, the suffering of Mitzrayim and God hears the cries and the next verse is Israel who has been exiled the Tochachon yet all three verses are the same God extracting somebody a person or a people and God remembering a promise that God has made in the next two cases And here we come, in these next two verses from the Torah, we come to what is the core theme of this blessing actually. How do you escape the judgment? And the answer in short is this. The answer is covenant. That's the answer. t. That's the word that appears. In the first verse, God heard their cries and remembered the covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In the next verse, I shall remember my covenant with Jacob and isaac and with abraham and the land so covenant is what allows us in these verses to escape the judgment and that's how the blessing actually ends the end of the blessing which is remarkable is talks about god we ask god to remember us for good (coughs) we ask god to remember the binding of isaac the blessing ends remarkably with another verse from the torah and the last words on page 160, for you remember all the forgotten things. There's no forgetfulness before you. So the bonding of Isaac you shall remember today for his descendants with, with, with mercy. Blessed are you, O God, who remembers the covenant. I just want to explain what I think that means about remembering the covenant. I, my understanding of remembering the covenant is this. Let me, let me, let me, let me make this formulation of it starts off everybody is judged all created beings are judged that's not good we can't we can't escape that because there's no way out of it but then there is a way out for some people like Noah who seeks out God who doesn't forget so God you don't forget God God doesn't forget you you treat God with with with, with, with kindness God treats you with kindness you treat your fellow human being with kindness God treats you with kindness okay. that's great if you're Noah but Noah is called an Tamin Tamim B'Dorata. Noah is a righteous, perfect person. But what about the rest of us? What about the schleppers? How, how do we escape on Rosh Hashanah? So we have a third way out, actually, different way out, which is the idea of covenant. The idea of covenant is not, in my view, saying, well, my great grandfather was a tzaddik, you know what I mean? So forgive me. Because if I were God, I would say, Atarabah. If, if, the, if your great grandfather was a bum and you're okay I, that I I appreciate if your great grandfather was a saint why are you not a saint I mean well, what kind of answer is this so I don't think it means that it doesn't mean let me off the hook because I have a patexia as it were you know, you know, I'm related to someone it means to the extent that I am identifying with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and to the extent and this is a very important point about the covenant covenant means that it's actually long term Covenant means, don't judge me the way I am today, but think of me in the, in the broader context of one who has an, a, 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 a much larger commitment. Don't judge me just today, but judge me the way I'm going to be in six months from now. Judge me the way I may be in ten years from now. I identify with this covenant. To the degree that we identify with it, okay? To the degree that we identify with it, uh, judge me not as a stranger. And the truth is, in life it is certainly that way. We have different relationships. Two people say the same thing to you. One, you're terribly offended. The other one says something terrible about you and you laugh it off. Why? Because you realize it's coming from a different place. That's why. Depends who says it. Depends how you say it. And that's the point about the covenant. And what happens in this prayer, which is remarkable, it starts off with the statement, there's no forgetfulness before God. That's how it begins. Right? There's no forgetfulness. Which is the beginning of the, of the right? There's no forgetfulness, and the third line means you, you're finished. You can't, you can't escape it. How do we end the blessing? With exactly the same statement. There is no forgetfulness. You remember everything. And therefore, remember the binding of Isaac. So the, because the truth is, it's a deep truth about, at least about human beings, which is, what do we remember and what do we forget? We have the ability to thank God to forget many things. If we couldn't forget many things, it's hard to survive. We're able to forget. The question is what things we choose to hold on to. And typically, the things we actually care about very much. We really care about them. We don't want to let them go. So, we're saying to God at the end of this blessing, which is about Adam and Noah and then Abraham. The hero of the day is Abraham. And Abraham's sacrifice and Abraham's obedience, submission, which is what Rosh Hashanah is actually about, because at the end of the day, it's about God. It's not about me. Okay. So I see myself as part of that. I identify with with, with Abraham. I identify with the patriarchs and the matriarchs. I see myself as part of this world. And therefore, uh, judge me not as an individual person. Judge me as a member of a covenantal community. That's what allows, I think, for this blessing... To transform the not forgetting, from a very f- f- fearful statement, have been you know, created frightening, to a statement which, at the very end, was somehow able in moving from Adam and then to Noah and then to Abraham, to move from judgment to 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 providence, to some kind of protection, to being part of this covenantal community, and to and to and to identifying with Abraham's behaviors. And identifying with the best that we have, that the community has to offer, so we ask God to judge us in much, in much broader terms, actually. And the truth of the matter is that it's not just the hero is Abraham, the hero of the day is Abraham, but it's not just Abraham; it's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And in particular,ly in the book of Genesis, it's Jacob, because Jacob is the J- Jacob is in fact Israel. <coughs> and Yaakov. More than anybody else in the in, the, in our tradition, anybody, his one great ability is to change himself. That's the point. So, of course, we start with we start with with Abraham. Abraham is the hero of, 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 of Rosh Hashanah. Achad Yitzchak, Though it's not, we also read it on the second day of Rosh Hashanah. When Rosh Hashanah was one day, we probably didn't read it. But in the service, it's very important, and the blessing is very instructive. Blessed are you, O God, who remembers the covenant. So Rosh Hashanah it's Abraham. Now we didn't get through all of Zichron. No, there's much more here. We have to leave it for now. Yom Kippur, there's a different hero. If the person Abraham is the hero of Rosh Hashanah, who's the hero of Yom Kippur? Moses. Moses, golden calf. The story of Yom Kippur is the eagle. Moshe is the is the hero of Yom Kippur. That's the one we identify with.